Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week, a special encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. September 11, 2001, unidentified terrorists lead a four-pronged attack on America. In New York, the morning hours turn into frightening chaos. 35 seconds, and then there was like this pause, and then boom, hit with all the dust, and it was black, I mean pitch black. I don't know if anybody could have survived being on the street at that time. And Diane and I were sitting there, somebody said into our ear, something's going on at the World Trade Center. There are flames coming out of the side of the building. Something has hit the building. It may be an airplane. It just went ba-boom. It was like a bomb went off. And it was like, it was like, holy hell, coming down upstairs. Justin, you were looking at, a, obviously, a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. It didn't look like there was a plane at all. It was just obliterated when it hit the ground. Well, quite simply, as we begin our 11 o'clock edition of Eyewitness News, the unthinkable happened today. The World Trade Center, both towers, gone. And we are all witnesses to it, and to some degrees, degree, we are all victims. Tonight, there are survivors trapped in that rubble. Mayor Giuliani confirmed it less than an hour ago. How many, we do not know. Towers and everything that was inside them is now strewn across Lower Manhattan office workers, the bodies of office workers, the rescue workers who tried to save them are now buried beneath tons of broken glass and twisted steel. The scope of this disaster is impossible to comprehend. Al-Qaeda orchestrated the string of attacks. In addition to the World Trade Center, another hijacked plane flew into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., while the last crashed in a field outside Philadelphia when passengers fought back against the hijackers. The nation grieved the deaths, a final toll of 2,996 Americans, a tragedy that forever changed our country. For some of us, September 11, 2001, still rings clear in our minds, even now, over 20 years after the attacks. But newer generations have little to no memory of that tragic day, either having been too young to remember or not yet born. We're re-airing our 20th anniversary of 9-11 special from last year. We reflect on how Gen Zers recognize an event that they learn about in history books and examine generational trauma affecting those who didn't even live through the event. Later in the show, American Muslims have always faced discrimination in this country, but after 9-11, anti-Muslim prejudice increased, frequently turning violent. We're looking at the growth and spread of bias against Muslims in America as the nation marks the upcoming 20th anniversary of September 11, 2001. But first, joining me remotely, journalist and historian Garrett Kraft, whose latest book, The Only Plane in the Sky, is the first comprehensive oral history of September 11th. Graf also serves as the director of the Aspen Institute's Cybersecurity and Technology Program. Welcome, Garrett. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to have you. Sam Summers, experimental social psychologist, author, and professor at Tufts University. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Sure. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. 
and Dana Rose Garfin, trauma scholar and assistant professor at the University of California, Irvine. Hi, Dana. Hi, great to be here. Well, I'm happy to have all of you to delve into this. And Garrett, I'm going to start with you because in 2019, you wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal that I think really can help people understand what we're talking about when you think about who experienced it, 9-11, and who didn't, and, and really what that means in terms of uh, recognition of this momentous occasion, this marking of the 20th anniversary. So you wrote in that piece, this fall, college students born after 9-11 began arriving on campuses across the nation for the first time. And in recent months, the first candidates born after those attacks began applying to join the ranks of the New York City Fire Department, still haunted by the loss of 343 of its members on that day. Similarly, military recruits born after 9-11 are now being deployed to the wars that the attacks sparked, as well as to Guantanamo Bay, where they will guard al-Qaeda prisoners captured before the young soldiers were born. Well, that really puts it in perspective, doesn't it, Garrett? Yeah, I mean, this is now a seminal event in American history where a quarter of the country, though, now is too young to remember the attacks at all and has only ever learned about them in history books. And yet, you know, even now, two years after I wrote that piece, we still have, uh, you know, wars underway in Iraq and Afghanistan or sort of the tail end thereof. Those al-Qaeda prisoners are increasingly moving into geriatric care at Guantanamo Bay, still even without any sign of the trials that would bring them to justice anywhere on the horizon down the road. I mean, this is an incredible moment in time as we watch 9-11 shift from memory into history. One of the things you've said is that the challenge of this history is, is that we teach it is not actually how it was experienced, that a big part for you in capturing this story was how 9-11 was actually lived. Now, what do you mean by that? Yeah, the story that we tell, the history that we teach of 9-11 is a much simpler, neater, and cleaner history than any of us who were actually alive that day experienced. You know, we talk about it as the attacks began at 8.46 in the morning. The whole thing was over 102 minutes later at 10.28 a.m. with the collapse of the second tower. There were the four flights. There was Pennsylvania, Pentagon, and the Twin Towers. But that's not the day that any of us actually lived, that we lived in experience filled with chaos and confusion and trauma that we didn't know when the attacks began. You know, most of us believed that that first crash was actually an accident, not an attack. We didn't know when it was over. We didn't know that the whole thing was over at 1028, well into the afternoon, until about three o'clock that afternoon, the U.S. government feared that there were more hijacked planes still in the air and that those attacks might ripple far beyond the East Coast. I mean, there were skyscrapers evacuated in Los Angeles, in Chicago. The Toronto subway closed. The Disney shut down, the first and only time it's ever closed due to a hostile act. And that the death toll for much of that day was feared to be 20, 30, 40, 50,000 Americans, perhaps. Uh, And of course, none of us knew what came next. We didn't know whether there was a second wave that afternoon on 9-12 in October, what might be coming in 2002. I mean, part of what is so hard for the current generation learning about 9-11 to understand is that they look back and they see that al-Qaeda was unable to attack the United States 
again for more than 17 years after 9-11. I mean, they sort of wonder, like, what was the big deal with the war on terror at all? You're exactly right. And Sam, you're part of the cohort of people teaching those students, by the way. And you talk about the anniversary and a big anniversary like this as a a kind of flashbulb moment because people can remember where they are if they were around. But it's quite different for students who weren't around or who have some vague memory or only read about it in a book. So first, what's it like to try to get across to these young people that Many of the things that are a part of our lives now, the security, the sort of anxiousness that overrides everything with regard to worldwide and global interaction among our leaders, is something that is can be directly traced to 9-11. Yeah, it's perpetually a challenge as someone who lives and works among and teaches college students to take uh, full account of the idea that one's frame of references are not the same as those students in the classroom. Those changes in references and reference points are particularly acute when you think about world-changing events like September 11th. And it is that surreal realization that these are students who did not live through this and did not have that experience. And I think so much of September 11th, 2001 was the uncertainty and the experience of going through it as it was happening contemporaneously. And it's hard to do justice to that. And as I say that, I'm sure there are people listening to this broadcast who are thinking, uh, like my parents' generation, right, that's what we've always been talking about with the Kennedy assassination or with other seminal events that have happened in, in, our, in our history that the, the lived experience of going through it is very different than reading about it and hearing about it after the fact. And it is a challenge to get people to uh, go beyond, of course, uh, the, the facts of what they read about on the page and hear about in the class and to put themselves in the psychology and the emotional state of what it was like at the time, it's, it's nearly impossible to do that. But of course, current events in our society, there's no shortage of crises uh, at the moment in our, in our current society. And, and there is some parallel there that can be drawn, I think, for students about what it's like to live through something that their children will one day be reading about in history books as well. The impact of 9-11, of course, Dana Rose Garfin, is the communal experience of having on these shores. And for America, particularly, since nothing like that had happened before, it was particularly traumatic. I definitely think that in some and in probably many ways, this younger generation was still impacted by 9-11. So, for example, you know, I grew up feeling a sense of invulnerability to any attack, right? So it was very shocking for my generation to to see and witness that we could actually be attacked by a foreign invader. And I think the younger generation, you know, grows up with their parents and grandparents recalling 9-11 and telling them about 9-11. So, you know, I would think that they kind of grow up knowing that's a possibility and maybe having this kind of low level of anxiety or apprehension. And again, as Sam said, there's no shortage of traumatic events in society that they're dealing with. So this is kind of just another example of uncertainty in the world that that could actually occur. And, you know, I also think from a trauma perspective, there's a lot of intergenerational trauma that gets passed on. So, you know, even from an epigenetic perspective, you know, women that may have been pregnant during the time of 9-11 or shortly after when there was all this trauma and societal upheaval and stress and anxiety, I mean, they could have passed some of that on to their children, even in a biological way. So what has your work taught you about the impact of 9-11 in terms of generational trauma on these generations that came after, on the Gen Zers? 
Yeah, so I don't know if we really have data specifically on how it impacted Gen Z because we don't really have a good control group of a generation that, you know, didn't experience that as a child in that same way, right, that grew up sort of after the fact of that. But, you know, I do think that we can draw from other examples of how these large scale events impact generations and, and impact people that are born maybe afterwards. And, you know, as well, like a lot of our research has shown that certainly many people are quite resilient after traumatic events, but we do see these protracted stress responses and negative physical and mental health outcomes that are associated with exposure to these events, even when that exposure occurs through the media. And for some people that can persist for many years. I think one of the things to pick up on sort of both what Sam and Dana are talking about is it is very hard now to realize just how different the environment that this generation has grown up in. That to me, the most fascinating moment of 9-11 has always been the 17 minutes between the first crash and the second crash. And you see in those 17 minutes uh, from 846 to 903, the incredible innocence of America as a country and as a people. No one really thought that first crash was going to be terrorism because the idea of being attacked in a public space was so new to the United States. I mean, there had been the the 93 attack at the World Trade Center, there'd been the Oklahoma City bombing, there'd been the Columbine shooting, but those were exceptions. Whereas the generation that has grown up since 9-11, they have grown up in a society that has been at war every minute of their lives. They have grown up with active shooter drills in school, and there's sort of this backdrop of fear for Generation Z that even me as a child growing up of the 1980s, you know, going to school in the 1990s never felt. We never had active shooter drills. This is just a very different American society that they have experienced without ever actually having a good understanding of that which came before. It's pretty interesting to me that, as you've pointed out in some of your other work, that if you peel it back, that 9-11 is in the backdrop of so many issues. So even if you weren't here, you are actually, you are living through all of the residue of it as it has embedded itself in these other issues that we are confronted with now. And give us an example of that, Garrett. Yeah. I mean, I think that you can draw, for instance, a very straight line in our politics from the attacks of 9-11 to the arrival of Donald Trump as president of the United States. You know, you can draw a straight line from the events of September the 11th to the events of January 6th in terms of the fear and the otherness of American society that we adopted after 9-11, the rise of birtherism, the anti-Muslim movements. And this isn't just in the United States, by the way. I, you know, I think you can draw a relatively straight line from 9-11 in the UK and the experiences thereafter of the war on terror up to Brexit in, in terms of the destabilization of the Middle East the war in Syria, the immigration crisis in Europe, and what that has meant for the way that a lot of Western democracies have looked at themselves and reshaped themselves in the 20 years since. 
and that's my guest, Garrett Graff, who's a journalist and historian. Um, Sam Summers, if a lot of this stuff is embedded, but there's no history or there is no meaning to the, I'm using Gen Zers as a kind of uh, uh, collective way to think about it, the, the generations that came after, what they consider to be threats is quite different. So 9-11 has that resonance for people who live through it, understanding you know, what changed and what became a threat. But for them, everything that Garrett just mentioned is just run of the mill. That's part of their lives. But other things are more forward to them in terms of threats, and they, they cope with that differently. Yeah, I think that uh, our our sense of threat is relative and and is subjective. And I think that one could very dispassionately look at numbers and say the the casualty tolls from September 11th, frankly, pale in, in in comparison to what's going on right now during the COVID pandemic in terms of deaths in this country, but also worldwide. And, uh, and that doesn't feel like a comparison that makes a lot of sense because September 11th, for all the reasons that, that Garrett's talked about, resonates still with our society because of what it meant, because of all of our living through it. But that becomes a difficult Thing to wrap one's head around when one when one did not live through it. I I, I think what's also notable in, in my conversations with students when we talk about, for example, September 11th as an illustration of a collective trauma or coping strategies in its aftermath, a lot of my students will sort of talk about the, the ways in which they've learned that the, the country, America, came together after that hmm. uh, event, after that tragedy, and it sort of all banded together, and there was there was unity and so forth. And but those of us who lived through it, and certainly those who studied it carefully, can speak to the uh, the, the the huge spike in in hate crimes and and hate speech in, in this country in the immediate aftermath, uh, in particular targeted against individuals of, of Middle Eastern descent in this country. And so the students now uh, and this generation that we're talking about, the young generation, is certainly aware. Of, of a similar spike going on in the last four or five years in this country, uh, in particular during the, the, the COVID pandemic in the last 18 months or so. But it is interesting and, and I think noteworthy which aspects of uh, the context Garrett was just providing uh, our, our young generations are, are aware of uh, and, and which aspects of it are not quite as evident if you just read a very cool, dispassionate historical account of, of September 11th and its aftermath. How then do you put this in the context of COVID, which they are very much experiencing? And obviously it's it's another communal attack, if you will, but of course a biological health one, a public health one. The students can resonate with that. The idea is that, uh, you know, Garrett talked about what it was like to live through and to, to, to experience September 11th. On, contemporaneously as it was happening and the uncertainty, how long is this going to last? What's going to come next? And while that was within the confines of 24 hours and then yes, the weeks and months that followed, we're 18 months into the, the, the pandemic crisis right now and our students are still asking those questions. We're all asking those questions. And so the time course is different, but some of that, that psychological impact and psychological uncertainty is, is very similar clearly. How does 9-11 and that history and the generational trauma memory play out? You know, 9-11 really ushered in a new era of experiencing collective trauma because this was an event that many in society either saw live on television as it was occurring and saw the immediate aftermath and saw this trauma replayed over and over and over again. And a lot of the research that my colleagues and I have done on a variety of collective trauma, including 9-11, the Boston Marathon bombing attacks, school shootings, the Ebola public health crisis, and in our ongoing work on COVID-19, is that 
the more people view these media images, particularly over and over again on TV, on social media, you know, that is directly associated with increased negative psychological responses, acute stress response, post-traumatic stress response, depression, anxiety. And so I think in a way, um, you know, many of these children probably saw those images. And then they are seeing these images of all these other events, the school shootings, the hospitals overflowing during COVID-19. And so they're continually exposed to these threats, even from the confines of their own bedrooms. So I think kind of the backdrop of this, you know, stay at home orders, schools being canceled, um, and these disruptions of their lives that they're directly experiencing, they're witnessing all of these crises on TV, on social media, on their computers, as they're occurring. You know, we all saw the events of, of January 6th live or shortly thereafter, replayed over and over again. And we know from a very growing and robust body of research that witnessing those events through the media, even indirectly, has very serious consequences for our mental health. So what do you think is the takeaway, Dana, on this 20th anniversary of 9-11? Yeah, so I think certainly Garrett's work is, you know, very impactful and very important. Remembering these lived experiences, honoring the trauma that people went through, remembering so we can be cognizant that these events could happen and to take the necessary actions in society, you know, to protect against those threats. But, you know, I also just think it's a good reminder that staying informed is quite different than exposing yourself to these disturbing images, whether they're of 9-11, whether they're of COVID-19, over and over and over again. Garrett, what's the takeaway, do you think? Yeah, one thing that will be quite different between 9-11 and COVID for Generation Z is that COVID has been a very isolating personal experience. All of us, to a certain extent, had a similar experience living through 9-11. We watched the same events on TV. Some of us were affected more personally than others, but there was a great moment of national unity that came afterward, as Sam was talking about. But as Dana was saying, Part of what makes the COVID pandemic so challenging is that even on the same street, let alone in the same classroom, people are having wildly different COVID experiences. And that that's, I think, going to lead to very different senses of what this moment was like. And because, you know, the message very much from the U.S. government over the last you know year and a half is that we are not all in this together as we were after 9-11, that this is each of us trying on our own to make it through this pandemic in a way that is different from our neighbors, our friends, our family, and our classmates in other parts of our towns and communities and across the country. So I think that this, th there's going to be a very different type of trauma and sense of memory of this event than there was after 9-11. And, and I think part of what overhangs the anniversary of 9-11 this year is that sort of shared sense that the unity that existed in the wake of 9-11 is now gone. And we may not see that again in our country anytime soon. Sam, um, you've said that memory works different for events that are emotionally charged versus those that aren't. Obviously, 9-11 was quite emotionally charged. Given what Garrett has just said, maybe COVID is not as emotionally charged because of the isolation. But nevertheless, what's your, your takeaway from how this 20-year marker 
is received. Yeah, uh, Garris made a compelling argument for September 11th having a legacy that continues to this day. Um, that said, for a lot of us in thinking through it, it also feels like much more of a closed period of time, a defined time that had a start point, had an end point, um, historically speaking, in a way that COVID did not. I, I think that one thing that we certainly learn from thinking through and having this conversation is that traumas are a frequent part of, of our lives collectively and individually, and we do all experience them differently, though there are some commonalities across them. I think that this provides a time for us to think back and reflect on where we were 20 years ago and what that experience was like, but also the ways in which our society and uh, we as individuals have changed and have not changed and how at some level we're reliving some of those same feelings and processes as we work through the crises that have now befallen us uh, more recently. And that we'll be having this conversation 10 or 20 years from now about retrospectives on other events, and it is a part of the, the human existence, how it is that we cope with these kinds of events and the memories of these kinds of events, which can be, frankly, almost as impactful as, as the original events themselves were. We certainly have an annual remembrance that's quite prominent. We read the names of all the people who were killed as a result of those attacks, and I just wonder, should this remembrance be as prominent as it has been in past years, continue to be that? Is it important that this particular moment in time, which has now become a moment in history, be remembered in the kind of prominent way that it is from now on? I, I think, uh, Callie, one of the things that is useful to look back on is our nation's memory and remembrance of Pearl Harbor that uh, December 7th for a previous generation, you know, well into the 1940s, you know, through the rest of the 1940s and into the 1950s was really seen as a solemn national day, nearly a national holiday. It was a date that people avoided scheduling other milestone events or gatherings on to mark that memory of Pearl Harbor. And for the years after 9-11, we have seen that happen with September 11th. But, you know, year by year, that memory fades and that the importance and, you know, emotional symbolism of that day continues to wane with almost every passing year. And, you know, I think all of us now begin to see life events being scheduled totally normally on 9-11. As a larger and larger portion of our country sees this day as a day in history and not a day that they lived, they're going to shift away from that. I have a three-year-old daughter, and I was born in 1981, and for her, 9-11 is exactly as far removed as the Kennedy assassination was to me. And, you know, growing up, I heard the stories from my parents and my teachers about what the Kennedy assassination was like, but that's going to be the way that this day lives for my daughter. What's your take, Dana? I think it's important for society to remember these events that happen in history and to kind of learn the lessons that, you know, we are vulnerable, that during times of peace, you know, here domestically, we should be grateful. And again, to learn the lessons of how these events can impact us negatively so that we can think about ways to deal with current and future crises in a way that are potentially not as impactful. Sam? I think certainly at a societal level, the commemoration here makes a lot of sense and, and is is one that helps keep the lives lost and, and the, the issues that, that arose after the attacks on our radar. And we all have to come up with the the 
emotional resources and the coping strategies that make sense for us. So for, for individuals for whom it's too painful to sort of think through and watch the, the coverage and, and have this kind of collective commemoration, then they'll practice what uh, emotion regulation researchers talk about as situation selection and, and, and avoid it and commemorate it and memorialize those they've lost at the time and the place that makes sense for them. So I think I'm sure that there's a great deal of individual variability in how we react to anniversaries like this. And I think as we've been talking about, the, the experiences that we have in life are, are, are different for all of us. And, and we all, though we had a collective memory of what went on during September 11th and its aftermath, uh, the, the very personal aspect of it obviously varies a great deal by individual. So it's the understatement of the century to say it's a bittersweet uh, sort of event here to have the ability to bring forth the memories of, of those who, who were lost and those who, who died trying to save others during September 11th. And at the same time, sort of practice the self-care that we need for those of us for whom this is an incredibly traumatic memory to have to, to have to reopen again. Thank you all very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Garrett Graff is a journalist and historian whose latest book is The Only Plane in the Sky, the first comprehensive oral history of September 11th. Graff also serves as the director of the Aspen Institute's Cybersecurity and Technology Program. Sam Summers is an experimental social psychologist, author, and professor at Tufts University. Dana Rose Garfin is a trauma scholar and assistant professor at the University of California, Irvine. Thomas Harold Bowden, Jr. Donna M. Bowen. Coming up, once it became clear that the 9-11 hijackers were Muslim, American Muslims became targets. The pain and anger of the September 11th tragedy drove anti-American sentiment as well as ongoing suspicion and misconceptions of Islam. Has public perception towards Muslims shifted as the 20-year marker of 9-11 approaches? And will that perception change for the better because Islam is the second largest religion in the U.S. after Christianity? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Nicole Bowers. Larry Bowman. Sean Edward Bowman, Jr. Kevin L. Bowles. Gary R. Fox. Gennady Boyarski. Pamela Boyce. Alan P. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is a special encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Islamophobia has always existed in the United States, well before 9-11. But after the September 11th attacks in 2001, Muslims transitioned from being, as one expert described, an invisible subject to a visible suspect. Unfavorable ratings for Muslim Americans increased after 9-11 in public opinion polls, according to the Pew Research Center, fueled by religious and race bias, misconceptions about Islam, and media stereotyping. Last year, to mark the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we examined the systemic and structural racism against Muslims that has long been embedded in this country. 
questioning if, as the years go by, Islamophobia will continue to deepen in our society. Joining me now, Amani Jamal, the Edwards S. Sanford Professor of Politics at Princeton University, Dean of the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, Director of the Madua S. Bobst Center for Peace and Justice, and author of Arab Americans Before and After 9-11. Welcome, Amani. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you. Journalist Malika Bilal, host of The Take podcast by Al Jazeera and former co-host of The Stream, a social media-led talk show on Al Jazeera English. Thanks for joining us, Malika. Thanks for having me. Fatima Ahmad, executive director at the Muslim Justice League here in Boston. Hi, Fatima. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having me on. Well, this is a sobering moment as we approach the upcoming 9-11 anniversary because our conversation really is about the bias that each of you have endured for some time. But I want to start this way with each of your personal stories about where you were and what you experienced in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 with regard to a change in attitude toward you. I'll start with you, Fatima. You were in the ninth grade when 9-11 happened. Yes, I was. I had just started the ninth grade and I was growing up in Cumberland, Maryland, which is in the Appalachian Mountains in the western part of Maryland. So I was a young Muslim woman, you know, woman of color. I wore the hijab. I was the only Muslim girl for for many, many miles. And the immediate impact was was violence. You know, me riding the school bus home um, and being harassed by by kids that I had grown up with just hearing within a few days of it that neighbors were putting up signs with really violent and racist terms about Muslims, you know, calling for violence against Muslims. And so this was just an immediate escalation for me and my family, even though we had definitely experienced racism and Islamophobia prior to that in those first few moments and first few days and weeks, it was definitely escalated. Thank you. Malika, you were 16 when it happened, but in a little bit different situation because you were in an Islamic school. So you were around people who understood and appreciated your faith, but still you experienced this. Right, exactly. School always felt like a safe space. So I remember Like Fatima, I was in high school. I was a senior in high school. And my father is driving my sister and I to school. It's about a 30-minute drive from our home on the south side of Chicago to the southwest suburbs to where our predominantly Muslim Islamic school was located. And we're hearing it on the news. We're getting worried, but not quite sure what it is and what exactly is happening. So my dad drops us off at school. And at school, all anyone can do is look at the TV screens. The teachers have rolled into the classrooms for us to watch the news and see how it's unfolding. And very quickly, the narrative that unfolded, the the blaming, the finger pointing began. School was canceled. Everyone went home that day. And then in the days and weeks that followed, because it was a Muslim school, we had neighbors who felt that they could take out their anger and their frustration on the school and on the surrounding community, the mosque that's also in this neighborhood. And so that led to police cars in the parking lot, um, standing watch 
uh, being vigil because we had bomb threats. We had eggs thrown at the windows of the school. This was all the response to the tensions that people were feeling. But unfortunately, it made us as Muslims feel twice at risk as, as Americans who had also suffered an attack on our country and were feeling the effects of that. But then also as Muslims from the backlash that followed out of fear. Hmm. Amani, you were born and raised in the U.S., left and lived in Ramallah, Palestine from 10 years old to 18 years of age, but came back to the States in the late 80s and early 90s to pursue your education and found yourself right after 9-11 really confronted with a lot of misconceptions about Muslims because at that point you're in academia. Yeah, that's exactly right. So my entry point into academia vis-a-vis trying to secure a job sort of coincided with the 9-11 attacks. So I was on the job market, visibly Muslim, so I wear the hijab and trying to secure a job. And almost everybody and anybody wanted to learn more about 9-11. So I often felt that I was sort of a spokesperson on behalf of the Muslim community and, and, and on behalf of Islam to sort of represent and contextualize what the horrors of 9-11 meant, not only to the US, but to Muslim communities across the globe. And, you know, I'm not a student of violence or a student of terrorism. I was a student of democratization and democratic engagement. So I sort of felt I was thrust in this other arena because of the misperceptions out there. You know, and I vividly remember when we would talk about 9-11 and Islam, it became very clear to me in those early months after 9-11 that the average American knew very little about Islam. And the average American had probably never encountered another Muslim. So sort of dealing with that very deep sense of not knowing what Islam and and, and Muslims were all about and finding ourselves in, in, in academia, but in everyday life, having to counter the overwhelming and almost horrifying stereotypes that sort of emanated also from different media outlets, from the popular discourse around Islam and Muslim, it was very overwhelming. I think if we were able to sample anybody from the Muslim community who was actively present in the community after 9-11, you will hear a, a sense of the sheer desperation in the community to realize that, you know, I remember saying this over and over, we are not gonna be able to overcome the public relations catastrophe of this event if we can't find partners in American society to understand that we are shocked that this happened. We condemn these acts, but we also don't want to be the victims and we don't want to be beholden and accused of being behind these attacks. And for a long time, even the most active and visible community members, there was a sense that we might lose this public relations campaign. And and quite honestly, if you sort of think about the events that came after 9-11, whether it was the invasion of Afghanistan, then Iraq, and then then the war on terror in the Muslim world, and then the the Patriot Acts and and the attacks on our own civil liberties in this country. For I I would say for a good decade after 9-11, the sense was that we did lose this battle, that we were getting subsumed as Muslims in this catastrophe. We were targeted, our rights were being stripped, and a lot of us began to question whether this was going to be the place to raise our children. So 
I want to go back, because you've raised very important points there, but I want to go back to the moments, the days after 9-11, when all of this sentiment is swirling. And just so that people can understand how much it was swirling and how intense it was, President George W. Bush uh, felt the need to address it. So here he is speaking at the Islamic Center of Washington just six days after the 9-11 attack in 2001. When we think of Islam, we think of a faith that brings comfort to a billion people around the world. Billions of people find comfort and solace and peace. And that's made brothers and sisters out of every race. America counts millions of Muslims amongst our citizens. And Muslims make an incredibly valuable contribution to our country. Muslims are doctors, lawyers, law professors, members of the military, entrepreneurs, shopkeepers, moms and dads and they need to be treated with respect. In our anger and emotion, our fellow Americans must treat each other with respect. So President Bush there felt the need to articulate who Muslims were, like ordinary people. He was followed at that same program by Youssef Salim. He was an imam at the Islamic Center of Washington who wanted to really reemphasize, you know, we're Americans. And he spoke after President George Bush's address. Again, this was six days after the 9-11 attack to those victims and to the families of those victims and to all America to let them know we also are shocked and dismayed by the events and dismayed especially that it should be associated with a religion that has only peace as its ultimate aim. I am here with other representative members of the Muslim American community and we are part of the fabric of America and we have contributed as our president has said in so many ways. So Malika, Now, fast forward to 20 years later, people may not know that Islam is the fastest growing religion really in the world, and it's second only uh, to Christianity in the world and, and in the U.S. But the changing demographics are such, as Pew made note in 2016, that by 2070, Muslims will outnumber Christians. We're talking about in this country. So does that mean that there are more people, you can see folks, you can interact with them, there's been a reduction in the kind of intense violence and bias and misconception that certainly was apparent right after 9-11? That's a good question. It's it's so striking to hear those words from a president, you know, being taken back to that time, especially because we just left uh, an administration that was not able to even give the lip service of acknowledging that Muslims are people and Americans and people worthy of of, of respect. So while those were the right words at the time from President Bush, of course, they also accompanied policies that did the exact opposite, policies that surveilled our communities, targeted our communities, investigated our communities. It's interesting because I grew up in a Black neighborhood and my family and I were not insulated. Everyone knew we were Muslims, but they also were familiar with Islam. They were familiar with uh, having a cousin who was a Muslim, whether that was someone who had joined because of the Nation of Islam or Orthodox Islam. They were familiar with the institution and the religion of Islam. So we were also around people who not only understood that, but they also understood marginalization. They understood stigmatization. And those were things that I think were newer for the immigrant Muslim community in the U.S. that they would begin to understand 
just as acutely as the African-American community has had to deal with all these years. And so the rhetoric has changed. I think you don't see the same level of attacks and intensity of attacks that we saw immediately after the 9-11 attacks. The policies remain, and it's the policies that have stigmatized our communities. It is the policies that have caused fear. It is the policies that have laid the groundwork, really, for what we see as this, this creeping apparatus of the so-called war and terror. And so while when we think of the war and terror, we think of Iraq and Afghanistan and the wars that were there, it also had an effect on the communities here. And there are things that we, we hardly even remember anymore, but things like DHS, ICE, mass surveillance, these weren't normal. They weren't non-existent, but they were not everyday things that we had to think about. They were controversial, and now they're not. Um, and so I think while, yes, we don't see the level of intensity of, of fear and attacks, we do see the simmering effects of those policies of that time. And Fatima, you joined an organization that actually was started to really combat Islamophobic programs of religious and racial profiling and some of the policies that Malika has referred to. So the Muslim Justice League begun because uh, women lawyers wanted to represent people targeted by the FBI or deportation and then, you know, expanded into a grassroots advocacy campaign. So what do you see now, 20 years later? You know, we see both the individual level violence might not be day to day as escalated as it was in those those first few days and first few weeks after 9-11, but it's still there as it always has been, right? But we also see the impact of these policies, which escalated after 9-11, have continued to, to deepen in the past 20 years, but actually reflect the long history of the U.S. and both domestic policies and foreign policy that impacts Muslims. And so what you see here in a city like Boston, where MJL is, you have this deeply embedded Islamophobia that not only impacts Muslims, but impacts Black folks, immigrants, all of the communities who are deemed suspect because it's so easy for people to accept that something should happen to Muslims. You know, the Muslim ban was not a widely unpopular policy. I mean, people did go out and protest it at the airports when it happened, but there's a reason that Trump got elected and that that was the first executive order that happened, right? That really reflects how deeply Islamophobic our institutions, our media, culturally, that we've become, that something like that could actually happen within the first few days of that administration. I remember during that election year, in one of the debates between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, there was a Muslim audience member who asked for their take on Muslims. And both of them essentially said, Muslims are good and fine, you know, as long as they're reporting on themselves, as long as they mm. are surveilling themselves mm. and telling us about violence. And so the, the assumption is still that Muslims are inherently violent, that, you know, we have to 
deal with this problem that we have to prove ourselves. We have to prove that we're American. We have to go through all of this surveillance and prove that we're not hiding anything. So what we see here in Boston, again, is you have a post 9-11 surveillance center that runs a gang database that impacts black and brown young people more broadly. But it was built again, based on national security pretexts on that, that justification of Islamophobia. And so we, you know, in our work, are helping people to understand that Islamophobia is systemic, it's structural, and that we have a long way to go. But we also build solidarity with the other communities that are that are impacted similarly. If you're just tuning in, this is a special encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Princeton's Amani Jamal, journalist Malika Bilal, and Muslim Justice League's Fatima Ahmad. We're discussing how bias and racism against Muslims has changed over 20 years after 9-11. What is the impact of uh, pop culture? And, and, and I know that may, to some ears, feel like an odd question, but there was a time, and to some degree there still is, where the face of villainy in films, for example, were always Muslim. So here's a clip from the 1994 film True Lies featuring actor Art Malik as Salim Abu Aziz. You have killed our women and our children, bombed our cities from afar like cowards, and you dare to call us terrorists! Now, The oppressed have been given a mighty sword with which to strike back at their enemies. Unless you, America, pulls all military forces out of the Persian Gulf area immediately and forever, we'll rain fire on one major U.S. city each week until our demands are met. Amani, what's the impact of this kind of pop culture diet? Yeah, thank you so much, Kelly. So this is part of the problem. And, and what's important to note is that a movie like True Lies predates 9-11. So, so when, when we talk about Islamophobia post 9-11, it's always important to point out that there's always been a healthy, robust current, if you may, of Islamophobia in the US that predates 9-11. And it is because of these popular depictions in, in the mainstream media, popular culture, movies, television, that this Islamophobia persists and was completely exaggerated, almost to an irrational perspective, where we, be, we began to ask questions on surveys of whether Muslims in America should not have civil and political liberties. And you would find that significant majorities of the American public supported reducing the liberties, the constitutional liberties of Muslim Americans in this country. And it's because of these portrayals, which, you know, at at the heart of these portrayals is this idea that Muslims are so violent and there is a civilizational heritage that makes them prone to violence that in essence, they are not worthy. They are not worthy of the civil and political liberties bestowed on quote unquote, civilized people. These tropes, if you may, these racialized tropes have often been there, not only in the media, but in the policy domain, Cali, they've been in the public sphere. We've used those tropes as as cover to justify our military interventions in the region. So over and over, there is this convergence in policy, public opinion, in the media, 
about the violent, other, horrible, racialized Muslim. And this has been a narrative. I mean, and so I always say this, you know, I challenge anybody out there until maybe very recently, Callie, maybe in the last two years, we could correct this, but up until let's say 2020 or 2019, when do we see normal looking Muslims who are on a playground playing with their children, worried about how to pay the bills and have the same sort of concerns of everyday Americans or everyday humans? Where, where is the human Muslim? And, 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 and people would often just, you know, in my students will stare at me and say like, okay. And, and then they go through this mental exercise. Well, maybe like six years ago in this one sitcom, there was like a one minute, but so that tells you that there's a problem because the only image this, uh, the public sees of Muslims is, is, is the violent extremist image and movies like True Lies, you know, it, it's sort of shameful, but they promote, and when we talk about systemic racism, this, this is where we're getting at the roots of the, uh, the Islamophobia. So last question to all of you, where are we right now in terms of this growing bias and what do you predict for the next 20 years? I'll, I'll, I'll answer that by also picking up on your last question, because I agree with everything Amani said, but I do think anecdotally, we are starting to see change. You know, I think it, it, it sounds funny, but Cardi B, you know, raps about eating halal food in her songs. I think incrementally and anecdotally, we are starting to see the, the, the mood shift around Muslims and Muslims being the fabric, part of the fabric of the American society. You will see hijabis on Grey's Anatomy and other TV shows. Sure, within 30 minutes, their scarf is off, but they are there. And I think this reminds me of one of the protests. Uh, it was after the Muslim ban and I was covering it. I'm a journalist, so I was covering it in D.C. and it was outside of the Trump Hotel. And one of the signs that I saw really struck me, and it was a sign that said, atheists for Muslims. And you had people chanting and shouting and saying no ban. And I don't think I recall seeing that. And I don't think that we would have seen that immediately after the 9-11 attacks 20 years ago. So I do think things are changing. I fear for underlying policies that keep things as they are, the things that still stigmatize our communities. But I do think that there is there is room for hope. Fatima? I think things have been changing. I get the benefit of seeing that every day with the organizing that that we do and seeing it at the community level. And it's always happening at the community level before it happens at the systemic level or culturally in the media. And that's why we exist is to, to build that power with our people. And I think that today is a good day. It's always a good day to start questioning these narratives, right? So much of it is that Islamophobia is deeply embedded in our media, in the cultural stories that we're telling and the, t the stories that, that politicians are telling about why we're doing certain things. And so I feel hopeful, but I'm also, you know, making making this call to action for anyone who is listening to go and, and understand. Amani. I'll be honest with you. I, I, I am an optimist by nature and I have been around for, for a while watching the post 9-11 climate. So I've almost been tracking it, if you may, for the last 20 years. So there's a lot that encourages me and a lot that energizes me, especially I'm, I'm, I'm very encouraged by our, our youth in this country. 
I think that they're stepping up to the mantra of social justice in very commendable ways. And when we talk about social justice and inclusion and equity, of course, Muslims are part of that subset of people that need to you know, be recognized. The fact that we're beginning to talk about this in terms of understanding the you know, history of racialization in this country and how common and how easy it is to dehumanize people for no other reason than to satisfy, let's say, the interest of a few. The fact that we're reckoning with that history and we're understanding that history and our youth are out there understanding that history, I think is very, 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 very important. So I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Having said that, I also want to say, Callie, we have a lot of work to still do. When we look at public opinion data since 9-11, about a third to 40% of the mainstream American public believes that Muslims are targeted unfairly, which means another 50 to 60% of the American public believes that there is legitimacy in Islamophobia. That, that's a huge, huge segment of the population. We had a Muslim ban in effect that was not overturned by the Supreme Court. There was massive support for the Muslim ban, and there was massive support to have religious tests associated with that ban. So while I'm encouraged, the fact that this course of dehumanizing an entire people continues and receives support from one of the most, what, what, what we proclaim is the most democratic country in the world, and we want others to emulate our institutions and our values, for me, is problematic which means we have a lot of work to do and we need to consistently address these ongoing levels of Islamophobia. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Amani Jamal is the Edwards S. Sanford Professor of Politics at Princeton University, Dean of Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, Director of the Madua S. Bopst Center for Peace and Justice, and author of Arab Americans Before and After 9-11. Journalist Malika Bilal is host of The Take podcast by Al Jazeera and former co-host of The Stream, a social media-led talk show on Al Jazeera English. And Fatima Ahmad is the executive director of the Muslim Justice League here in Boston. That's it for this week's special Encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH. Produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.